Welcome to the Flying Less podcast, a podcast created for the School of Geography and the Environment at the University of Oxford in collaboration with the University of Oxford's Environmental Sustainability Team, funded by the Green Travel Fund. The Flying Less podcast, the podcast which asks what you and your university stand to gain by flying less. You know, I don't say that I will never fly again. I haven't flown since 2007. You know, there might be an occasion, but there has to be a really, really high bar. If the aviation industry wants to be neutral, one way is to reduce the flight annually by two and a half percent. We're all happy to point out the problem that actually finding the solution is far more difficult. A one-size-fits-all solution, even at an institutional level, isn't going to work. For me, definitely, I would say that by not flying, I really opened space for creativity, for new ideas, uh, I think very relevant ideas. and for new ways of doing research. I'm your host and humanities turned social science researcher, Dr. Noah Bergstedt-Breen. Welcome back to the Flying Less podcast. In this episode, I consider one of the most problematic areas for the higher education sector in reducing its dependence upon aviation, academic research, whether fieldwork, international collaborations, lab work, international archival research, There are many reasons why academic practices may necessitate flying. I'm excited to share with you two fascinating interviews, each one shedding light on a different aspect of this episode's topic. The conversation around flying less tends to get expressed as a negative, a self-sacrifice. Even the phrase flying less is problematic for that reason. But what is less frequently discussed are the positives. What might we gain if we stop flying? Could less flying be more than a strategic position? Could it also lead to a creative adaptation to low carbon ways of living and working? That's what I wanted to ask my first guest on this episode. My name is Christoph Kufren, Professor of Urban Ecology at the Eastern Switzerland University of Applied Sciences, and I'm a scientist at ETH Zurich. And where are you joining us from today? Uh, well, I'm based in Zurich today. I'm actually in Lugano, in the Dicino. I have, uh, I have a few further affiliations. One day per week I teach in the Dicino. It's actually an American liberal arts university a college where I teach sustainability. Okay, so yeah, and thank, thanks for sending the blogs across. That was really helpful. Um, you've written about this and you said, you know, you'd never set foot in a plane as a student. And then 15 years later, I've traveled at least 10 times around the world. Can you talk about sort of why flying was useful? And also that how process of having been someone, you know, you hadn't flown, how did you come to convince yourself that it was natural or, you know, the right thing to do was, was to fly? So I'm an environmental scientist. And so for some years, I coordinated international projects that were sort of based across sites, across the planet, uh, which is a very interesting way of doing environmental sciences because you have this global planet with all these different ecosystems and you can start to compare what happens locally and then synthesize it um, through comparison. And what, what, But then, as you said, my, my personal story was that I, I, I'm a kid of the 1980s, so that meant it was... Uh, trying to be sustainable, not flying, no cars, organic food. Uh, and, and I studied environmental sciences because of that. That was sort of my, my values. And then 15 years later, I was one of those guys that were constantly at airports and in planes. And what interested me is how can we change our society and uh, individual behaviors? Um, that it happened to me what obviously happens to many. 
that societal constraints, institutional constraints, uh, and personal constraints just make you do something you actually don't want to do. And that's why I then said, let me try as an experiment, stop flying, or flying less, actually stop flying. Uh, and what mattered to me was really as an experiment. Because I, uh, I, I thought it's interesting, certainly I myself become not uh, the, the, the subject of my research. So you did genuinely expect this to last one year? You know, uh, that was the start. I, uh, I started by saying it's for one year, and then after a year I wrote this a second block uh, that the experiment is ongoing, and meanwhile it's about five years. So it has become a five-year experiment. I think this is the, 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 the many things I want to talk about. One, the ones I'm most excited about was just where you've written about, um, you said, this means when you started to fly, well, you have this experiment, no flying virtually. This means that I'm working with colleagues from other disciplines and practitioners here in Switzerland. And I think on a Stay Grounded um, blog post, you maybe also describe that a little bit as well. The fact that it was cross-discipline and maybe something you hadn't necessarily done, either done at all or hadn't done much of before. I was just, it'd be really fascinating to hear about that project, how it came about that you sort of equated not flying with an opportunity to, to reach out to others across disciplines and do something and, and work in a different way academically. Whenever we talk about um, not doing something like not flying anymore, we only talk about what we lose. We forget the opportunity costs. Because by not doing something, we gain thing, uh, time, we gain opportunities, we gain uh, space for new ideas. And in my case, for instance, um, I mean, there, many scientists work in their disciplines uh, on a very specific question. And so the other two, three people they want to talk to are the other specialists. One of them is somewhere in the US and the other one in Australia. So you have to travel. But once you start to do inter- and transdisciplinary work, so that means you work with other disciplines on complex societal issues and you work with practitioners, uh, you realize that the most exciting people you want to talk to is, is actually the ones in the next office uh, on the same campus or working for the city administration. And, and, and you need actually the, the people around you uh, to work together. Could you tell me about that project? Well, there, there, there were lots of different projects, but at the moment, for instance, I, I work a lot on urban ecology, biodiversity in cities, and, and about um, uh, urban sustainability. And there, we, we basically, we have uh, all sorts of projects where we bring together urban planners, landscape architects, gardeners and garden designers, uh, and then ecologists, and they're both plant and animal ecologists, uh, and then often also like engineers or hydrologists uh, that together come up with sort of nature-based cities, green cities, where you have soil and trees that capture uh, the water and cools the city, and you have with this more green spaces, that means more uh, more spaces where, uh, for recreation, which has health benefits, and you have more options for designing, for landscape architects, and so it all comes together. You, you need systemic thinking, and by bringing it together, you actually gain synergies. You, you can do things you can't do without uh, collaboration. Yeah, brilliant. So yeah, so, so what I'm hearing is sort of it's actually quite a different academic practice and way of thinking about academia. It's a very different academic practice. And uh, this shows that thinking differently about travel suddenly can uh, start you to think about uh, very different and fundamental questions about how the academic system is 
is organized, what is being rewarded. So if, if you get rewards for traveling because you meet the people that, that later review your papers so you can get them into higher impact journals and that is the only thing that counts, then travel is something important, but it's also something that stabilizes a system that might be considered to be partly problematic. If, on the other hand, your rewards come from developing solutions that work on the ground, uh, then uh, that's a very different reward system, a very different time of academic practice, and it's related to a different type of, of how you do your research, including how you travel or don't travel. Yes, yeah, so you, you were beginning to talk about this earlier, about uh, something you mentioned again, is the fieldwork in a foreign country can be organized through local um, researchers on site. So how you were talking precisely about, you know, sharing ideas, having these projects across, across borders and potentially quite distant geographically, sort of distant locations. Um, I mean, now with your five years of experience behind you, how do you feel about that? Sort of what's, how do we navigate that balance? I think what, what really helped me to more critically think about my research more generally is that to travel or not become some, something I have to consider at least for a moment. A question I have to ask myself because in the current system, a ticket, plane ticket is almost for free, and everyone assumes that you have the time to travel and leave your family behind. That that doesn't cost. It's not supposed to cost because that's your job. And now, once I said I, I don't just fly without thinking about it, I can think about why do I fly to a place like somewhere in the south, or should I rather not fly and and come up with another solution? And I think that that is very important for, for instance, from a post-colonial perspective, because we often think the South, that's where the problems are, the North is where the solutions are, and that's obviously when we talk about sustainability problems wrong. The North produces all the problems and has produced them for a long time, so we are the problem, and we should probably rather ask people from the South to help us solve our problems and pay them plane tickets to come to Europe and the North to, to help us come up with new ideas that we, that we lack. Definitely. Is there a project you could tell me about along those lines where there's been a different type of partnership? Have you, have you personally had one of those? Um, well, at the moment, I think what, what is really interesting, I, for instance, I work in, the, as I said before, the, the, the fields of urban design and architecture. And there is at the moment really an interest in vernacular techniques, in, in building with natural materials. So I think there is, it's really interesting that uh, learning from others, from, uh, let's say, the South or uh, uh, from, uh, from non-high-tech solutions, low-tech solutions has become mainstream. And I think that's really interesting and that should be much more common. Yeah, maybe just you, you wrote, stopping flying seemed as natural to me as starting flying. Can you just explain that? I mean, this was an attempt to sort of um, uh, challenge our uh, implicit understanding of progress more uh, so to have something instead of to, to, to stop something is always the, 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 the progress is always in something new, something greater, something more technological and uh, not doing something that we did before, going a step back or as, as an opportunity to then go in a different direction, that is not considered progress. And, and I wanted to say that, that we are probably in a situation of, of uh, where we need to think of alternatives images of what progress is yeah and for me definitely i would say 
that by not flying, I really opened space for creativity, for new ideas, uh, I think very relevant ideas and for new ways of doing research. So for me, progress was started by stopping something. Maybe I can just add to that. Please, of yeah. course, another, uh, what I also try to, uh, to highlight with this is that besides technological innovations, social innovations are very important. Uh, and, and by if, stop flying means that you have to think about how you reorganize your life, your social life, the, how do, in the end you reorganize institutions, and that's social innovations. And they are often, because they not, you can't touch them, they're not an artifact, they're often not considered uh, the same uh, uh, innovations of the same magnitude as a technological innovation. A new machine, everyone sees it's new, it's fancy, it's cool, it's novel. Uh, social innovations, uh, less so. But I think social innovations are really crucial to solve. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, the difficulty of actually evaluating that. In one blog, you had the five principles of, of um, flying less or flight-free practice. And well, I just, I enjoyed that you did have a little cheating as permitted. Um, but maybe you can say in your own words why you thought it was important to include that. Well, I think it's, it's we are a time of, uh, of try and error. We are in a time of bricolage and of failure. Failure is, is normal. And at the moment, we have uh, sometimes we have this sort of discourses on society. Either you eat meat or you don't eat meat. Either you fly or don't fly. Either you're good or you're bad. And that obviously won't yeah. help us move forward. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so, so I think it's, it's the in-between solutions. It's the imperfect solutions that, that we need. Uh, and also it's uh, the... It's failures that we need that help us learn, uh, and it's uh, we have to risk to fail to to be able to. Yeah, and and perhaps it makes it seem not quite as unattainable if someone is considering considering it as an option. That's yeah, exactly. Yeah. At the moment, we think if someone says I don't fly, and then after three years he she has to fly, then that that's the worst that can happen to yes. you. Then everyone laughs. To think about. Um, flying less research and say what sort of to think about more broadly for the higher education sector i guess there's a risk where on a research project i was doing with a colleague who's worked in this area for a long time um and we're putting together a survey and sort of we started to look into the nuance of this and of course you can have all these situations like there might be a, a top professor who says well that's it i'm not flying anymore but actually then lots of people fly to come and see this top professor so that in fact it hasn't really actually done that much Whereas I think what you're talking about and, and, and your experiment is about um, is about actually how can I have a different practice and consider that it's not that the research has dropped, but that we change our partnerships, that there's a kind of more profound institutional changes and, as you said, engagements with local communities and across disciplines. What has your experiment um, helped to, to show you so far? Let's start with your example. There's a top professor, and so it's more efficient if, he flies to 1,000 people, an audience of 1,000, instead of 1,000 people flying to, to him. And there may be a question would be to ask uh, in the current academic system, uh, the idea of having top professor, genius 
that everyone has to see. Is this indeed uh, a good representation of how knowledge production and our academic system works? And, and I think that is important. And that's what I wanted to point out also. Uh, we all, it's an important time we have to really question some of the fundamental assumptions we have about how, for instance, the academic system works. Um, and so my answer there would be, maybe it's better if young uh, scientists who need uh, more interactions and building time to build up uh, opportunities to build up their networks, they should fly. And what often happens is that there's the top professors who sort of fly constantly around the world and meet the same top professors once in New York, next time in Melbourne. Maybe that's not really uh, necessary. Um, so I think, and, and, and in this way, there's many things we can question. And, and so for me, really what is critical is, for me, one of the most critical aspects of my ex experiment is that academia depends on freedom, of freedom of choices. And, and, and uh, by saying I don't need to fly, uh, I had to take risks. People told me you will have less publication, you will risk your career, you will have sort of less uh, reputation losses and so on and so forth. But I think this step, as an academic, you have again and again, you have to risk all this to keep your freedom of choice, of, of, uh, of sort of uh, that you do the right kind of research. Uh, and that is very fundamental for me also in other regards, because also when you think of publish or perish, you realize that we do a lot of publishing that is not really necessary and no one reads the article. There again, I think we need this moment where you step back, you risk uh, a few things to keep your freedom. I think freedom is essential. It's interesting to hear you frame it that way because I, you know, I feel like I've probably more encountered the idea, uh, I've heard the idea that sort of freedom, well, we need you know, the freedom to fly, but what you're saying is that actually there's a very different type of freedom. And uh, yeah, I think uh, asking yourself what freedom actually is and what we are told uh, freedom is supposed to be. Yes, yeah, so sort of questioning the existing limitations or the existing ways of doing it might actually be very limiting. Freedom is, is more the ability to follow your core values. You suggested a very, um, I'm going to say bold, uh, a bold proposal, say about um, how the university might begin to engage with flying, which I thought was really interesting. Um, so you said taking 2005, uh, sorry, 2015 as reference, it's conceivable that we could lower the number of flights taken by 10% in um, 2016, by 20% in 2017, and so on. Um, and in fact, you ended up by saying by 2040, we could be down to a figure of 10 flights a year for the whole of, of ETH. There's something both wonderfully, well, to, to me, it seems wonderfully kind of yeah, rational and common sense about this. But I'm going to guess that it might be perceived by others as naive. I mean, what, what was the feedback? Was it this is simply impossible or, or, were, or was it welcomed as an idea? I mean, my point there was that we have to talk, talk and think about transition pathways, about pathways. And this was in the context of this goal of net zero greenhouse gas emissions by somewhere around 2050. And, and so it was actually what I proposed was very pragmatic in, in contrast to this stark number, to this, uh, this target. If you just uh, name this target, then everyone feels that's not possible. We can't go to zero. So, and then the, 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 we stop thinking because 
it feels like impossible. And once you start to think about the first step and then based on the first step, you will might come up with new ideas for a second step and to think of it as uh, about pathways and we have to start walking, then it becomes maybe more fe feasible. And actually this has been taken up uh, or ETH at the level of the whole institution has an institutional strategy to reduce flying. And they actually had, their strategy uh, was based on the idea of, go, of starting a, a walk. They, they went from department to department and they didn't tell them, look, by 2050, you have to have zero uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Rather, they asked, what do you think you can do by today? And you commit yourself to what you can do. And then they collected the commitments. And I, if I'm right, they came up with 17% reduction now uh, across the departments of, of flying or of greenhouse gas emissions through flying. And that sounds like little. And there was this critique uh, that this is not enough. But I think the interesting thing is that every department had to think about what they can do and what is feasible, and they had to start a process, a social learning process. And the hope is that this process will continue. Yeah, so the fact that it's participatory and involves the creativity of each... And this participatory yeah. approach, and uh, but having uh, commitments that, that are doable, that, uh, that can be implemented immediately. As did, did that idea come from what you were proposing, that the institution picked up on the idea? No, I think in parallel, the institution started to think about it. So, it, uh, I mean, it was something in the air. And, uh, and, uh, but it's great that the institution, uh, at the highest level, um, really took it up and, and, uh, and really made it a process that was compulsory for all the departments. Which, as you know, universities are, yeah. <laughs> it's not easy to make something yes. uh, sort of compulsory top down, but in this case, it really worked. ETH as an academic institution took a leading role. But meanwhile, it's all the university have a strategy to reduce flying. So this shows that one model, uh, role model, helped others to follow. So this really triggered um, uh, a change in all the universities and academic institutions in Switzerland. That's great. And then what I think is, is interesting with the strategy of, the, of, of ETH, that it's a sort of a mix of top-down and bottom-up. So there's this top-down leadership. The ETH says, we take this responsibility serious. But then how we do it, the solutions, they came up bottom-up. It was a collection of all sorts of ideas. So, so some researchers said, I can stop completely. Others said, well, I, I, uh, maybe not, but I can do more video conference. A third one said, um, uh, we can have like local conferences. So there was really this collection of all sorts of, of ideas that came together. If there's so, uh, someone, professional staff and academic staff, students, um, thinking about taking this step themselves, um, I mean, there's often a narrative around, well, the individual can't do it all. It has to be an institutional response. And in a sense, you know, that's true. This has to be a, a collective endeavor. Um, but is there any advice you'd give on kind of what's the first step or, or how, to, how to think of it or go about this, even if there's not a one size fits all, but, but perhaps how others might begin to think about their first step? Well, I think one, one important uh, advice would be think out of the box. We need creativity. We need the, the unusual solution for almost everything. But that's not just for flying less. I think an academic career nowadays um, is uh, you, you need all sorts of unusual solutions. Uh, the second advice for me would be that um, 
always uh, make sure that you don't forget your core values, especially in an academic career, because it's, it has become a really tough type of career. And if in the end it doesn't work out, make sure that you did what really matters to you. And, uh, and again, if you from time to day say no to a conference, then that means that you, you still um, can say no. That means that still, uh, you know, what really matters is more important to you than just a little st additional stone that might build this career. Thank you, Professor Kufer. I really enjoyed the idea of academia as experiment and in centering ourselves within that experiment. Next, I speak to Laura Rival, Professor of Anthropology at Oxford. She continues to fly for her research in Latin America, but an early banana boat trip across the Atlantic helped shape her worldview, both personally and professionally. I'm a British social anthropologist by training and an Amazonianist at heart. I've always wanted to travel by flying less, but please don't say that I'm a, a fly-free, you know, researcher, <laughs> sure. because that would be very far from the truth. But I suppose when I think about this first journey to South America, I was relatively poor as a student, and air flying was relatively expensive at the time. And I think that's the big difference. That was just before globalization became a big thing, if you wish, in, in the late 70s, early 80s, early 80s, let's say. Flying was actually much more expensive. So basically, I was a young person who was very thirsty for knowing the world, like many young people. And so I went to Canada from Paris and I did take a flight. It was expensive. I had to, to save a lot of money for that flight. Four years later, when I had finished my first degree, I did go by bus uh, from Vancouver to Seattle, then eventually to Mexico City. So you could do this, you know, bus journey and it was safe. I don't know about it today. I don't know if young people would, would make those choices today, but that was something very normal to do um, at the time. Um, and then I could have continued to travel by bus between Mexico and Quito, where I was supposed to join one of my teachers who had invited me to be a research assistant. I did travel to Quito by plane, um, but as you see, already I was making those decisions, not just on the basis of what is cheaper, although this is, of course, a factor, but there were all kinds of other considerations, right? Two years down the line, I did take a bus from Quito, the capital city in the highlands, to Guayaquil, the great port, where um, I could take a banana cargo boat uh, from Ecuador uh, all the way back to Germany. That's, that was the normal banana, you know, trip. However, and that was free, but of course it was not just that. It's because I was in love with French poetry. Michaud wrote this beautiful book about his travels to South America by boat. There is something romantic about traveling by boat, etc., etc. And I had the time. <laughs> and then one stop, the first stop in Europe was Cork in Ireland. And it was quite extraordinary to see just next to this cargo ship, after 21 days on sea, there was a Brittany ferries. 
<laughs> and then immediately my mind said, Brittany Ferries, that goes to, co to um, uh, Roscoff. And I could phone my parents. My parents could come and pick me up from Roscoff. I hadn't seen them for all these years I'd been in the Americas. And um, that was quite magical. But of course, on the Brittany Ferry, I will never forget how alien I felt because the boat was full of British and Irish families traveling to the continent for their holidays. It must have been July or August. And I felt so weird. It was quite a cultural shock. Can you say a little bit about um, that 21-day journey as well? There must have been a number of interesting conversations or, or the people you met. Yes, was, yeah. yes it was It was. In fact, it was continuing being an anthropologist on a boat because the crew was a mix of Ecuadorians and uh, Norwegian, Swedish people, um, mainly men, but there were a few relatives who were also like me, you know, uh, benefiting from a free travel mm. on the boat. <laughs> it was very rough. We had a, the swimming pool was just an enormous box, you know, a, a kind of metallic box right in the middle. And it, you had to use your imagination. It was not a cruise, yeah. <laughs> a ship by any means. <laughs> it was hard to keep your physical health as well. You had to do a lot of walking back and forth on a very um, simple, you know, uh, deck um, but the conversations were very nice and yes it was um, knowing people more personally uh, knowing more about their lives you know what it means for these sellers you know there are many many sellers I don't know how many thousands of sellers do work in the world and I have been thinking about them a great deal during covid because they were not allowed to disembark because of the epidemics. And so their lives were really, really tough. And without that experience in my youth, I don't think I would have been able to empathize so much with them. Um, it's a different life to live on the sea. <laughs> yes. What you're describing, what's coming across very vividly is, and I've heard other people talk about this, that when they do um, some form of slow travel, that the, their sense of time changes, their perception around even sort of how we know things or how we make knowledge, how we make meaning. You know, we notice connections in the world around us that we wouldn't have noticed, where our food is coming from, where our bananas have just literally come from or whatever it might be. Um, so it sounds as though that was kind of input, an important uh, moment for you to, to experience. Yes, and when you talk about international development, it's very much about uh, economic inequalities. Um, so they were there on the boat all the time. You know, like, you know, there is a difference between the South American crew and the European crew, a difference which I had already observed in uh, oil fields um, when I was you know, invited by the engineers to come, you know, on the oil fields in the Amazon forest, a lot of European American companies. And, you know, there is a separation, not only between the population, indigenous people and, and these tron, um, transnational, you know, workers, but also between the different categories of workers. And then poverty. And so 
um, we stopped in in um, in the north of Colombia on the way to the Panama Canal, and I was asked to not leave my room because it was very dangerous. Basically, the boat was taken, the ship was taken over by a lot of prostitutes, and I don't know exactly what else, but. Um, what happened as well is that three tourways uh, came on board because they got the wrong information. They thought that this boat was going to Miami, and so they hid in the in the fridges, if you wish. The bananas are refrigerated, so they created a little passage, a little corridor, shelter for themselves. Um, you know, uh, among the boxes of bananas. But of course, after three days of being in the fridges, <laughs> they, they had to come out. They could not stand it anymore. And they realized they made a mistake. And they had to be chained um, on the deck. And uh, the captain said, and I don't know whether he was saying it as a bad joke or whether it is true, that they were lucky not to be on a Russian ship. Because if they had been, they would have been fed to the to the sharks. They would have been thrown overboard. While he, as a good Christian Ecuadorian captain, he was going to take him take them all the way to Hanover and all the way back to Colombia. <laughs> so here you get a much more direct exposure to to the inequalities that are underpinning the globalized world in which we exist. Yeah, absolutely. Did you have a chance to talk to the three stowaways? No, we were not allowed to approach them. Okay. And I have to say, sometimes I almost, I almost think that I must have drained that because I have very little memories of who they were chained and what exactly happened. I, I don't remember very well that part. Sure. <laughs> but it is. it did happen. Yeah, it did happen. yeah, felt like a dream, yeah. And you said you came onto the boat with, with a sort of out, partly out of romance and the idea of, sort of a romantic journey, and it does sound partly that was the case, but also what you're describing is um, another side as well, which is sort of confronting global inequalities and poverty and, and some real-world aspects alongside this amazing journey with the sea below and the sky above. Yeah, and also you have the sea for 21 days. It's uh, I saw fish that I would have never seen. I mean, and, you know, it's you are in contact with the sky in a very different way, obviously, when you're at sea. You see the sky, you see sunsets, sunrises in a very different way. And you have to structure the day yourself because otherwise it could be just one single. So your sense of temporality is extremely different. And your relationship to our natural world is very different as well. You're on a machine, but the machine is really exposed to the elements. So it's a very different way of understanding nature. And... and um, a very different world from the forest as well, obviously. And and so it made me very, very acutely aware, I think, of of uh, of climate and weather and and natural environments and the non-human beings that are, you know, part of this world as well. Knowing all of that, I asked Professor Rival how she negotiates flying for her research. Personally, so what I did, I'm sure that millions of other people have done it, academics and non-academics, they don't do just flying for one thing. They always try to organize their flying plans in such a way that they will accumulate a lot of activities in what they do. And by definition, this is going to minimize the number of flights they are taking. 
Um, but this is not sufficiently visible. So that's one thing I would say. That's what I have done. Um, I have tried to fly less by going to less conferences. And that's very clear that conference flying is is something that we need to do something quickly about, much easier to sort than research. Was there another situation where you decided to get to Latin America using a similarly creative way? Um... I would have liked to, but there it's slow travel. It's like slow science. Um, the university career is not accepting that, you know. It, it's, um, everything is militating against that. You see, so I did try to go just for longer period of field work, you know, during my sabbaticals, for example, rather than going every year, yeah. for example. Um, so I would do things of the kind, but I know that even that is not enough. Yeah. You see, that obviously as, as a m middle class European, I have traveled too much, you know, by by plane and not just by plane. I mean, what I would do is that I would not have a car. So I haven't had a car for many, many years. I have always been part of these schemes by which you share cars. Um, and I, I have biked. I mean, it's easy in Oxford. Even that, when, when you look at the carbon footprint, you know, how many hundreds of thousands of you know, low cost, low carbon journeys you need to do in order to compensate for one long. It's it's just terrible, you know. What you seem to be talking about is the difference between sort of in good faith asking ourselves and critically reflecting on what is intrinsic travel without which this research could not happen and what is maybe non-essential travel. Yeah, I think the important thing is to be conscious. Um, so calculating the carbon footprint of the trips we are doing, whether they are by train, by plane, or by boat, or whatever, is an important exercise. And then not leaving it to the individual consumption. I think that would be wrong because, you know, it's too easy to put the responsibility and the burden of choice and responsibility on individual shoulders and every individual using their own conscious conscious decision making and, and their own consciousness of the world may also be thinking, would I do more good? Um, would I, would I um, make a bigger difference by acting you know, politically, for example, on forcing, you know, a, a faster change in the way transport is organized or energy is distributed or something along this line than just always looking at my own consumption, you see. So people can do this kind. I mean, we are academic. We are trained in reflecting and analyzing the world. And I think that's how we should do it. And, and share our reflections with each other. Is there an ethical dimension to flying less beyond the climate question, particularly for anthropologists? Um, well, yes. I mean, everything is ethical in a way. I think when you're conscious uh, about the world around you, your place in the world, you're using your 
ethical judgment, you know. But it's also, as an anthropologist, I would say it's about difference. You see, we, we need to embrace um, and, and, um, and celebrate difference. Cultural difference is part of what makes the, life, the world exciting. And what globalization and global travel has done, I think, is to erase that difference as well. It's like people are just traveling like... Uh, mindless flies, you know, and you want to make it easy and faster, everything you know, you know, everything is the same, so you know where you're going, you know what you're doing, and you don't have to waste time thinking about it. Well, that's exactly the opposite of the kind of travel I'm interested in. We need to rediscover the art of voyaging. In English, I can't really translate this well, because and I think it's an effect, again, of globalization, of erasing difference. Travel, trip, journey, all these words have become interchangeable. They, they are becoming synonymous, you know, of voyage. You know, it just doesn't mean anything. The transport must become part of the experience of journeying. You know, so we need a new language. We need to, to think as academics about the words we are using and how they accurately describe the experiences that we have. Thank you to Professor Rival. So, flying less can mean more adventure. New ideas about how to practice low-carbon academia through, for example, fairer partnerships with institutions in other countries, and many other potential benefits, some of which we explored in the first episode. I want to give the final word in this episode to Dr. Matt Watson at the University of Sheffield, who spoke to me about one other reason why we fly in the UK higher education sector, in addition to what we've considered so far in this podcast series, namely internationalisation. Internationalisation is clearly the, the kind of biggest tension for academics in reducing flight. The internationalization agenda plays out differently across different areas of the university. So um, we've been experimenting during the pandemic, of course, in maintaining that international communication. We've seen something of the potential for maintaining international exchange whilst flying less. The bigger issue, of course, is international students. Um, international students are tremendously important for universities in terms of their mission for education internationally. And the fact is they also bring in a lot of money. So international students' flights, obviously we didn't know what university staff flights look like. We certainly didn't know what international students' flights look like. But a rough back of the envelope calculation based on country of origin and assuming just one flight a year put international students' flights at more than double uh, staff flights, so international students' flights to attend the, the university. Um, so it's a massive issue. And if, you know, in terms of scope three, there's always a question of whose emissions are these? Is it the university's emissions? Is it the students' emissions? How much responsibility does the university have? Um, but again, it's something that's changed over the last couple of years, and that in being given my brief as task and finish group lead, I was told, look at this, this and that. Don't look at student, international students' travel. That's off the agenda. Um, but in significant national initiatives, um, like the COP26 universities uh, carbon offsetting report, uh, does cover international student travel, and it is kind of being recognised as an issue. And it, it's a very difficult one to, to tackle for all sorts of reasons. 
universities have been forged into marketplace actors. Uh, yes, they continue to collaborate happily on research, but often that collaboration is in cause of the overwhelming competition that we're, we're facing. And part of that competition is on demonstrating internationalization, uh, getting those large international collaborations. So there needs to be national coordination. So I'm very pleased to have been talking with uh, UKRI, the sustainability team on, you know, they've got huge potential um, influence to reshape the doing of research. Um, and it's, it's that kind of level of actor that needs to be taking hold of this agenda. Basically, the, the playing field needs to change. It's clear that universities individually can do a lot to cut out the flights that can easily be cut out. But when it comes to affecting the indicators by which we're measured, there's a, there's a clear limit. So it takes change at the national level to change those indicators. Thank you to everyone who has taken time to contribute to this podcast. And thank you for listening. This episode was written and produced by myself, Dr. Noah Bergstedt-Breen, and edited by Ryan Beckerleg, a PhD student in the School of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Cardiff, and radio host extraordinaire of Cardiff's Student Radio. The artwork is by Arda Yushich. The podcast music was written and composed by Julian Bell. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please help us to spread the Flying Less message by sharing your favourite episodes on social media and by recommending it to colleagues and students. The Flying Less podcast, the podcast which asks what you and your university stand to gain by flying less.